Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. This is Ashley Olander. And this is Art Middlecoff. This is the second episode of Ask Art, entitled, What Happened? So Ashley, you know, before we jump into the question for today, I thought it might be helpful to take a step back and kind of talk a little bit about where this whole Ask Art thing came from. Does that sound good? Yeah, that's great. Why did you start Ask Art? Yeah, so this, honestly, it wasn't really my idea, but uh, what happened is that as I've been at various Charlotte Mason conferences and retreats over the years, uh, oftentimes the organizer likes to have like a fireside panel or an open question and answer, and uh, those have always been really interesting and some, uh, some very insightful questions and sometimes very moving questions and answers come up during those segments, and not everybody's able to go to a Charlotte Mason conference or retreat to ask their question. And so a friend of mine said, hey, you know, why don't you kind of open the, the door for anyone to ask a question that, um, that, that maybe doesn't have an opportunity to do so at a retreat, and, and then you can kind of speak to their question on the podcast. That sounds so great. What kind of questions have you gotten so far? Well, so the, at the conferences, you know, um, I get questions that run the whole range of um, people wanting to figure out how to apply some of the ideas practically to their lives. But, uh, you know, the other place where I do get a lot of questions is, um, you know, I run this Idol Challenge for Men, which is, uh, this is the second round that I've done this. So leading a group of men to read through all of Charlotte Mason's six volumes in two years. In in the format for our discussions once per month, the guys get together and one of the things that they have to do is come up with one question they have about the reading. And so uh, doing two of these meetings per month for the past, you know, maybe 30 months or so, you know, there I've just answered dozens and dozens of questions about Charlotte Mason's writings. And uh, it's led me to, to realize that uh, you know, people have, people are really wrestling with a lot of Charlotte Mason's ideas. They have a lot of questions and I just wanted to have the opportunity to think through some of these questions and talk about them in a, in a, to a wider audience. That sounds great. And it sounds like you've had a lot of questions asked. I know um, for myself, I come across questions all the time on how to apply this method to our life, our homeschool, um, and just kind of our everyday that's right. And, and, I th- and I do see some themes, you know, so there are certain questions that keep coming up again and again, some more common than others. And um, so when I put out a call a couple months ago asking our kind of readers and, and listeners, if they wanted to send any questions to the podcast to ask anonymously. And um, one of the questions that came in is one that it's not a super common question, but it has been asked from time to time. That question is why we're calling this episode, What Happened? Okay, I'm going to go ahead and read the question. And it says, my husband asked, is the PNEU still active today? If not, why? What happened? How many years after Mason's death did it remain active before it finally stopped? If it is still active today, is there one in the U.S. that acts to train teachers to be able to sufficiently implement CM's methods in their homeschools? Or is merely reading Mason's volumes enough to be able to accomplish this? So that's a, it's such an interesting question. And, um, you know, whenever I get a question, one thing I like to do is, is look for kind of the question behind the question. So, um, so this individual said, you know, is the PNEU still active today? If not, why? What happened? 
And when, when I see people asking this, I kind of think there's two different questions behind it that they're asking. One question they're kind of asking is, hey, if the Charlotte Mason method is, is as great as people are saying it is, and as you're saying it is, then why did the PNEU kind of fade away? Like, why didn't it just continue to grow and grow and grow? And then I think the second question behind the question is, it's kind of like this, well, who's in charge here? You know, who, who can tell us? Like, is there some, is the, if the PNEU is still around today, could they just kind of come in and train our teachers or train our homeschoolers or help us to be able to, to know if we're doing this the right way? Or is there really no authority and all, all we really have is to just go back to Mason's volumes? And is that really enough without a PNEU to kind of, be the arbiter and guide and, and trainer in terms of how to use the, these methods. So I, I think that that's, I think those are kind of the two questions behind the question, if that makes sense. That does make sense. So I think in order to, um, you know, answer both the, the question and the questions behind it, I, I think in order to answer the question, is the PNEU still active today? We need to go back in history and talk a bit about this organization, how it got started and, and where it went. Mm -hmm. So when Charlotte Mason published Home Education in 1886, there was a, a, a lot of very warm response to that book. And uh, so Charlotte Mason wanted to build on that reaction and actually help parents to be able to put into practice the ideas about education that she was sharing with the world. And so the Parents Educational Union was founded in 1887, and it's always been an organization that's gone hand in hand with Charlotte Mason's philosophy of education. Um, so if, the, uh, if we think about the volumes, uh, the six volumes of the home education series as being the books where Charlotte Mason lays out and defines her philosophy of education, the Parents National Educational Union, the PNEU, is the organization that was designed really to help parents and educators put it all into practice. And so the philosophy from the beginning always had an actual institution or organization that was dedicated to providing all the support, the assistance, the structure, everything required for schools and, and homeschooling families to, to implement the method. That sounds like a dream come true. <laughs> it does sound like it was a really nice arrangement. And so then with uh, Charlotte Mason's death in 1923, you know, the, the question, of course, came up, what happens next? What happens to the PNEU with Charlotte Mason moving on to eternity, really? And uh, so she didn't leave the future of the PNEU to chance. Uh, in her will, she named Elsie Kitching as the director of the Parents Union School. And the Parents Union School really goes hand in, it's really part of the PNEU. And it's the, the part of the PNEU that provides the programs of study and does the exams and checks the exams and reviews them and, and so on. So Elsie Kitching was named the director of the Parents Union School. And Elsie um, Kitching was extremely devoted to Charlotte Mason. And uh, Jack Beckman, who is a friend of mine who in uh, 2003, he wrote his PhD dissertation on the topic of Charlotte Mason's philosophy and, and what happened to it after her death. And uh, Jack Beckman in his paper, he noted that Elsie uh, Kitching, um, her interpretation of Miss Mason followed 
Lines of Orthodoxy, which were variations on a theme of literal understanding of her writings. Um, she followed a conservative position, he says, and uh, she was an idealist and often took the role of, of interpreter of Charlotte Mason's writings. And so uh, with Elsie Kitching at the helm of the Parents' Union School, that really ensured that the PNEU continued to operate for many years after Charlotte Mason's death, the, exactly the way it had been run while Charlotte Mason was still alive. That's a big job for Elsie. <laughs> yes. Take yeah, and, it, and she wasn't completely alone because she also had, for example, Ellen Parrish was uh, running the House of Education, and uh, Ellen Parrish was also a committed devotee of Charlotte Mason. And what Jack Beckman points out is that um, while Kitching was the idealist, uh, Ellen Parrish took more of the practical approach, um, but was just as, as doctrinaire, was the word he uses, in terms of how they wanted to ensure consistency in the Charlotte Mason method. And so Jack says in his paper that he calls, he refers to, quote, the trilogy of theology, philosophy and practice that orchestrated Charlotte's realized pedagogy, solidifying an epigenetic core of ideals and beliefs, which were to withstand the general onslaught of taxonomic drift from 1886 to 1949. And I love that quote. One of the reasons I love that quote is because it has such a cool word in it, an epigenetic core. Someday I'm gonna actually look that up and see what an <laughs> epigenetic core is, um, but it sounds pretty cool. Um, but, but the kind of idea that I get from this quote is that, you know, Jack's research shows, or Dr. Beckman's research shows that, you know, all the way from home education in 1886 up to the date he gives is 1949, there was uh, a complete, you know, uh, a complete resistance to drift away from the core ideas of Charlotte Mason's philosophy. It seemed like the PNEU was still active long after Charlotte Mason's death and really trying to stick to her principles in a way that um, some of us try to do now. That's, that's absolutely correct. And so, um, but you know, Elsie Kitching, you know, she didn't, didn't live forever. And so the question becomes, well, what happened, you know, Dr. Beckman put the date at 1949, you know, what, what were some of the challenges that the PNEU faced after this period of highly conservative um, faithfulness to Charlotte Mason's original ideas. And, uh, you know, Elsie Kitching, she died in 1955. Um, but as she was, uh, you know, as she was getting close to the end of her life, some changes began to take place in the PNEU. Um, and these were not bad changes, but um, in 1948, uh, Miss Elizabeth Molyneux, became the director of the Parents' Union School. So now we have um, a new person who's in charge of sending out, writing up and sending out the programs that went out to all the students and to all the homeschool families. Wow, I wonder uh, what kind of training that job <laughs> entailed. Right, exactly. And so Miss Molyneux, she uh, was not some kind of outsider. So she came definitely from within the core and she had been trained in Ambleside and uh, was, was very much um, qualified for the role that she took on. And in addition, she also took over editorship of the Parents Review. So Elsie Kitching had been uh, editing, been the general editor of the Parents Review from 1923 onwards. In 1949, Elizabeth Molyneux uh, took over the role of being editor of the Parents Review as well. 
Um, and she did this until her death in 1957 at age 51. And so uh, now we're, we're in the year 1957, we'd be up to now the Parents Review Volume 66 at this point. And uh, when we start to try to trace you know, what happened after the 1950s, it gets a bit harder to get access to all the information that chronicles out the history of the movement at that point. And so one of the things that I've tried to do is to track down and obtain some of this information. Well, it seems like it would be easier to get that information because it would be more recent in history. Right. But it's uh, part of the challenge is that, uh, you know, the PNEU has always been based uh, out of England and has already been always been very uh, kind of British centric. And so the material is not you know, available in, in the US. And so I've had to spend time at the Armit Museum where the Charlotte Mason collection is housed. And uh, I've spent some time looking at some of the more recent documents that chronicle what happened you know, after the days of Elizabeth Molyneux. And um, so I've looked at kind of what happened to the Parents Review and the PNEU. It's interesting because the Parents Review goes all the way up till 1966, and volume 77 is the last volume of the Parents Review. But it turns out that uh, the Parents Review didn't really end at that point. It just took on a different name. So in 1966, we had uh, the, the last volume of the Parents Review, but we also had the first volume of the PNEU Journal. And uh, that was released the same year, volume one. And it's kind of fascinating when I looked at issue number one of volume one of the PNEU Journal, you'll never guess who the editor was. Who was the editor? The editor was Joan Molyneux. So actually, um, as I've tracked down the genealogy, Elizabeth Molyneux's sister. So uh, Elizabeth Molyneux, who had uh, succeeded Elsie Kitching as the head of the Parents Union School, after her death, at some point, her sister Joan kind of stepped in and carried forward the work. And, uh, and around that time, in the mid-1960s, they decided that um, the name PNEU Journal would better reflect and have more recognition for what they were trying to do. I love that you're able to piece that history together. That's really so interesting. And I love that it's family members that are carrying that on. That's right. And there's such a touching letter from uh, Joan Molyneux in volume 68 of the Parents Review, where she thanks the readers of the Parents Review for all of their condolences and kind wishes um, that they've sent her family upon the death of her sister, Elizabeth Molyneux. And so this uh, kind of family connection and that bond, it's really touching to see that. And so the PNEU Journal kept going, you know, full steam through the 1960s, the 1970s. So then another big change took place in uh, 1978. And uh, in 1978, what happened is that the PNEU merged with another organization called the Worldwide Education Service, or the WES. Um, and so what happened at this point is that the PNEU Journal continued to be called the PNEU Journal, but it also included now the acronym of the Worldwide Education Service, or the WES. And I think what's interesting to note here is that, you know, when the, when the title changed from the Parents Review to the PNEU Journal, they restarted the volume numbers. And so they said, okay, PNEU Journal Volume 1. But the interesting thing is when the merge with the WES took place, they did not restart 
the volumes sequence. So it seems as though with those page numbers being restarted, are they separating themselves from the original PNEU? Or is it just saying we're, we're going a different route or we have a different thought? Were they still sending out programs? This, yeah, great, great question. So with the read, with the renumber, with the restarting of the volume numbers in 1966, it was not a, it was not an indication of a major break from the way the PNEU was operating. And so in 1966, there's a, uh, there's an editorial where the editors explain that they just felt that it was time to have a new look for the journal. And okay. uh, they felt that, you know, they wanted to have like a, a picture on the cover um, it's, fa it's fascinating to read the little um, kind of editorial that explains the upcoming changes. And they say, hey, we want to have like photos of like, you know, students and children mm -hmm. on the cover of our journal. It, it reminds me of like, you know, kind of an early Instagram, you know, it's like uh, <laughs> it's the 1960s, you know, social media. They're like, wait a minute, we can't just have a journal that's just words. You know, we've got to have pictures of, you know, kids and no nobody would ever do that now in the 21st century, right? Think that you need to have you know, pictures of doing education in action. So it was really, they, they phrased it more as kind of a facelift of the, of the journal itself, not as a shift in philosophy. So they absolutely were still sending out programs. And the programs in the 1960s followed uh, the same structure and uh, had a, quite a bit of continuity with the programs from the earlier days. And, and I do have a, I took a, a copy of one of the programs from the 1960s that has Bible and Pilgrim's Progress and all kinds of other things. And I think you've seen the scan of that, right, Ashley? I have seen that scan and um, it looks just like one of the earlier programs and just the notes, some of the footnotes are just a little bit different. Right. So, uh, so what I find interesting is that you might think, well, if the PNEU is merging with the WES, wouldn't that be a more, a more major change? And wouldn't they, you know, want to renump, start the volume sequence over again and say, well, this is volume one of the PNEU slash WES journal. And they didn't. And the fact that they didn't renumber it to me is an indication that this kind of merging with the WES was still not a kind of decisive break in some way with the tradition of Charlotte Mason. And so in the first issue of the PNEU journal, after the merge with WES, there's again a, a fascinating uh, letter from the editor at the opening of the volume. And so this is 1978, volume 13, number two. And I'm just going to read uh, the quote from this uh, editorial. It says, behind the editor of the journal is a bookcase containing long rows of bound copies of the journal. And I'm just going to stop here. I've, I mean, I've seen that, you know, I've seen the bookcase that has the long rows of bound copies of the Parents Review, and it's quite mm -hmm. impressive to see. So then, uh, so then the editor goes on to say, in the 87 years of publication, the name has been changed only once, from the Parents Review to the PNEU Journal. It is a serious moment with the thought of all those volumes in mind when another title is chosen. For with this issue, the journal becomes the WES journal, new initials, but standing for our international role rather than the old initials, which stood for our part in British educational mm. progress. So I, I, I'll again pause and, and note that you see kind of a bit of a, of, a, of a motion here where there seems to be a sense that being you know, completely British-centric there's mm -hmm. a there's a sense of awareness of maybe a wider mission, um, and that uh, and that these some of these concepts of education apply you know around the world. 
Wow, that's really interesting. So it feels like maybe it was more of like an honoring Charlotte Mason and then moving on now to larger things and showing that they're still carrying on her traditions, her principles just now across the world. Yeah, that, the, the fact that they didn't do a renumbering, the fact that they continued the sequence just at volume 13 and didn't start over, I think is an indication of, of continuity. Now, that's not to say that, you know, that uh, at this point in the 70s that, um, that we were still in the era of Elsie Kitching and Ellen Parrish where there was this extremely strong fidelity to Charlotte Mason's ideas. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that everyone would acknowledge that while there's a lot of consistency to the way things have been done, you know, back in the 30s, the 40s, and even the 1950s, there mm -hmm. was definitely some shifting taking place, but there was always an acknowledgement at the core that, uh, that they were attempting to, to carry on the Charlotte Mason tradition. And so the, the, uh, the editorial in this uh, first issue of the PNEU slash WES journal goes on to say, nowadays, most of our work is concerned either with homeschool families overseas or with schools established by companies or organizations. Although we shall be concentrating on these activities and trying constantly to expand and improve them, the PNEU schools in England and Wales will not be neglected. Hmm. The Parents National Educational Union will remain the name of the company and the charity. So wow, they're still focused on homeschooling families and there are still schools. Um, using her methods. That's really fascinating. Yeah, I think um, this whole idea of, of homeschool families, we still see this as being a thread in 1978 in uh, this British-based PNEU. And um, remember, like, think about the American homeschooling movement in the 1970s, you know, this is when homeschooling was just starting to get kicked off in America. And this is when you know, parents would be worried about being thrown into jail if right. they were homeschooling. And yet there across, you know, across the ocean, we have this organization carrying on the PNEU tradition saying, hey, we're concerned about homeschool families overseas. And uh, that, that last note, the fact that um, the editor says that the Parents National Educational Union will remain the name of the company, it indicates here that the PNEU, back to kind of our original Ask Art question, the PNEU still existed. There still was that company, that organization. And theoretically, in 1978, if you wanted to, you know, go and say to somebody, hey, what is the PNEU? What is their official position on A, B, or C? There was a company, a place, an official organization that you could go to to get that answer. So that was 1978. Now we move forward to 1985. And in 1985, we're up to volume 20 of the PNEU journal, now called the WES journal. Still going, PNEU still in existence. And there's a fascinating article that we find in the February 1985 issue. And uh, do you have any idea, Ashley, of a book that was published in 1985 about Charlotte Mason? Um, I probably should, but all I can think about is that I was five years old. That's right. <laughs> right. So 1985 seems like, uh, it seems like just yesterday to me, but 1985 was the year that Susan Schaefer Macaulay published For the Children's Sake. One of my favorite books in homeschooling. Right. And this was the book that is pretty much universally credited with causing the rebirth of interest in the Charlotte Mason method. 
1985, we have Susan Schaefer Macaulay publishing For the Children's Sake and volume 20 of the PNU Journal that same year. Wouldn't it be interesting if there was an intersection between the two? Well, it yes. turns out that there was. So in the February issue, a CMT, Charlotte Mason teacher, Doreen Russo, wrote an article called A Philosophy of Education Restated, and it's a book review of For the Children's Sake. And I'll just read to you the opening paragraph of her article entitled A Philosophy of Education Restated. The title of Mrs. McCulley's book means much to those of us who trained at Charlotte Mason's College in Ambleside. For the children's sake was our motto. And the book's subtitle, Foundations of Education for Home and School, was what our training was all about. The interpretation of education as enveloping the whole of a child's daily life, the environment and the atmosphere in which he grew, an educational program which would nourish his mind to the full, encourage his natural interest and curiosity, and not stifle his inborn wish to learn, nor his individuality, and would above all respect him as a person from his very birth. We set out to teach in PNEU schools, homes, and classrooms armed with this philosophy and provided with programs of work to guide us. Wow. So they were still very much in line with Charlotte Mason. The PNEU was still going strong. And I mean, the fact that they reviewed her book is amazing. I cannot believe that. Right. And I think it says, you know, for it's a powerful confirmation that if anyone were to say, well, you know, Susan Schaefer Macaulay, you know, she kind of romanticized Charlotte Mason or she didn't understand Charlotte Mason. Well, here we have kind of the old guard validating the new guard. You know, here we have a, a someone educated at the Charlotte Mason College saying, you know, Susan Schaefer Macaulay, she nailed it. Like she got it right. I mean, like this is what we're about. We are about an educational program which nourishes the child's mind to the full, which but above all respects him as a person from his very birth. It's definitely one of the things that draw me so much to Charlotte Mason. And the fact that Susan Schaefer Macaulay just got it so right is wonderful to me to know that we have this resource, we have this available to us and knowing that we are carrying on this torch. I love that she said homes and mentioned that again, and it feels like you can hear the excitement with this discovery of knowing that this book was written for people then and even now, just carrying on the work of the PNEU. I couldn't imagine being Doreen and seeing this book and being so passionate. Obviously, you can tell by her words how passionate she was about Charlotte Mason and then being able to see this new book come out and, and basically revive this method, especially even in a different country, you know, even in America. I, I can't imagine how she must have felt, how, how deeply indebted to her she must have felt. And I wonder if Doreen or if any of the readers of the PNEU Journal might have had any clue that this book was going to be a change of, of kind of trajectory. Because, I mean, the story we see of the PNEU is one of, you know, gradual decline. And, mm -hmm. uh, and as a, you know, one thing I haven't really touched on is as we kind of trace through the evolution of the the Parents Review magazine, the PNEU Journal, um, there is definitely a, you know, a decline. And so, in the, so that was a, the February 1985 issue had this book review by Doreen Russo of uh, Susan Schaefer Macaulay. In the June 1985 issue, 
there's a report of the council of the PNEU. And um, notice that it, it, what it does say is it says the homeschool service continued to form the bulk of our work, providing programs, books, and professional support to families all over the world who decide mm -hmm. to educate their own children. But then the numbers are almost heartbreaking because then they list the numbers and they say, well, there's 29 affiliated schools in the UK, 21 affiliated schools overseas, and 393 pupils in the home education service. Oh, wow. And I think of 393, I think of like, aren't there some homeschool families that have 393 people? <laughs> it definitely seems that way sometimes, for sure. So, so when I think about, you know, 393 pupils home educating using the Charlotte Mason method the same year that Susan Schaefer Macaulay launched the rebirth, and uh, now, you know, 393 students is just a drop in the bucket. You know, then what happened? So two years later, now February 1987, I found in the Armit Museum in Ambleside the final journal, the final issue of the WESPNEU journal. And it was volume 22. And uh, I took a picture of the kind of the opening title page because uh, it just shows still, even in 1987, some bit of that continuous narrative arc. It says the first bullet point is it says Charlotte Mason is the founder. And uh, on that page, it explains the acronym CMT. A lot of people ask what CMT stands for. It stands for Charlotte Mason Teacher. It's someone who's completed the program of instruction that began at the House of Education and became the Charlotte Mason College. And at this point in 1987, a man named Hugh Bolter was the director of the PNEU. And uh, there's a PNEU council. And there's also a, a name that many of you uh, listeners may be familiar with, Eve Anderson. So Eve Anderson is listed as a PNEU council member. And so it's fascinating because there's no real hint when I look at that February 1987 issue, there's no hint that said, it's no like a farewell, you know, it doesn't say, well, it's been great. It was a great gig while it lasted, but you know, we're done, we're packing up shop, you know, it's, it's not there. The, the, the story just kind of ends and there's no further, you know, journal that that explains what happened. And so, you know, you might ask, well, is that, is that kind of the official end mark then? You know, would you, would you think that that's kind of the end of the PNU at that point? Or do you think the trail goes on? One would think that that would be the end of the PNU, but you know, I, you could also, I would also think that it could exist maybe on a smaller scale with a few of the people who are really diehard uh, Charlotte Mason teachers, people that wanted to carry it on as much, best as they could. Yeah, so that's a, that's a great insight. And um, when we noted that there's only 393 pupils using it, I mean, how can you really sustain an organization on that small of a subscriber base? But as you note, Ashley, there was, you know, still a faithful set of teachers who had been trained at the House of Education in the Charlotte Mason College. And they had an alumni or an alumnae magazine. Mm -hmm. And that alumni magazine was called Lumiel Pianta. And so Lum the Lumiel Pianta is another source of information about the PNEU activities over the years. And so there's a lot of early editions of the Lumiel Pianta in the Charlotte Mason digital collection that you can see online. Yeah, I've seen those but before. That's right. Them. Yes. And they continue going. The Lumiel Pianta keeps going even when the PNEU journal stopped. And so there's later issues of the Lumiel Pianta that enable us to still kind of pick up the thread 
about what happened. And uh, at some point, maybe I can share some things that I saw in even Lumiel Pianta issues from the 1990s. Um, but, but the fascinating thing is we pick up the thread in the summer 1989 issue of the Lumiel Pianta. And uh, here we hear again from Mr. Hugh Bolter, who now, he gave a talk on May 6th, but now he's called the former director of the PNEU. And uh, he, he describes in a, in a talk that he gave that there's been, he says, owing to the changing employment of British people overseas, it is not possible to reverse the slow decline in home schoolrooms. Now, isn't that fascinating? So here in Britain, we've got a guy in 1989 saying there's this slow de decline in home schoolrooms, but he's maybe obl completely oblivious to the explosion of homeschooling that's happening across the Atlantic in the United States where there's this massive increase in the number of homeschool rooms because now we're 1989, right before this massive just right. revolution in homeschooling. But it's interesting that he still saw himself as PNEU. He, he talks a little bit about what he tried to do in the 1980s. So he said, when I took over from Charles Smith as the director of the PNEU nine years ago, so he still saw himself as PNEU and he described what he did in the 80s. He said, on the revision of the programs, you know, remember the programs who we saw, we saw in the 60s, they still look fairly similar to what we saw in the early days. Mm -hmm. Well, he undertook a revision of the programs. And he said, we undertook major work during the early part of the 1980s and have continued with this and will indeed continue to do so in light of the national curriculum. I believe that we have adapted the materials to the demands of modern education whilst retaining all that is best in the thinking of Charlotte Mason. Wow. So it's a kind of a bittersweet comment, I think. Yeah, absolutely. He's, so he still sees himself as a kind of steward of Charlotte Mason's ideas. But he says, you know, we've got to adapt the materials to the demands of modern education. I mean, Ashley, do you ever hear that nowadays? Oh, no, not ever. I never hear that. <laughs> or feel that pressure myself as a homeschool mom um, to make sure that we're adapting to the modern times. Right. And so, I mean, I think that a lot of Charlotte Mason leaders feel the same thing that Mr. Hugh Bolter felt, the, the last, you know, the second to last director of the PNEU. He said, you know, a lot, I like a lot of the stuff in Charlotte Mason, but there are these new materials we need to adopt. You know, I'm not sure that, that that's really the case. I mean, there's definitely some new, some new, the world has changed for sure. Um, but there's a lot of core to Charlotte Mason that doesn't need to be reworked for the demands of modern education. No, if anything, I would think that leaving Charlotte Mason's principles and her program at the core, the way that it, it always has been, but then with the, with the modern things, with the modern knowledge that our children do need to know that they, they should have in this modern era, you can adapt teaching that to them with the principles laid out by Charlotte Mason. So I wouldn't feel like I would take anything out from what we have from, from Charlotte Mason originally. If anything, I would just perhaps maybe at a different time or add in um, some you know knowledge from today that my child would know, but obviously teaching it in a way that was Charlotte, that lined up with her principles. That's right. And so this, this kind of tension of, um, of, of how do you, you know, what does Charlotte Mason method look like in a different time and place? Mm -hmm. And that tension is something that we also read Hugh Bolter talking about in this May, uh, May 1989 talk. And, um, you know, first of all, he says, I remain convinced 
and I'm quoting here, he said, I remain convinced that Charlotte Mason was absolutely right in her insistence that all educational thinking should start with the potential and needs of the child. Mm-hmm. So here's 1989. Now there's another book that would come out two years later, 1991. And in 1991, Douglas Wilson published a book called Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning. So two years apart, we have uh, the PNEU director saying that I remain convinced that Charlotte Mason was right, that educational thinking should start with the potential and the needs of the child. Two years later, we have really the, the birth of the renaissance of the classical education movement in North America by Douglas Wilson saying that educational thinking needs to start with the ideas of the classical past. So two fundamentally different orientations, both being discussed within two years. But, wow. uh, but Bolton also talks about something else. He said, Charlotte Mason had a high view of British culture, which is one that I find myself very comfortable with. However, whilst I agree that a study of British history is an invaluable part of education, nonetheless, it is difficult to see what sort of history one should teach to a Finnish child attending a WES school in South Korea. (laughs) So do you see the tension that he's observing here? Yes. Uh... And so how do we, how do you answer that question, Ashley? What Charlotte Mason, you know, focusing on this high view of British culture, does the Charlotte Mason method give guidance to a, a Finnish, somebody from Finland, a child, a Finnish child who happens to be going to school in South Korea? Does the Charlotte Mason method speak to history for that child? What do you think? I think it does. Right. Think, and why? And why? How is it able to do that? I think that you, because you are starting with that child, you are starting with where, where they are and what they know. You can you can apply Charlotte Mason's principles really to anything. So what you're saying, Ashley, is that the principles are not locked into the British 19th century, 20th century context. Correct. So Charlotte Mason had children in Britain learning British history first, not because she was saying that there is an all time forever, not because she was kind of replacing, you know, There's an analogy here, right? Because in classical education, the foundation is learning the Greek and Latin classics, no matter where you live. I mean, for them, for Douglas Wilson, the answer is quite simple. I know what to teach a Finnish child attending a WS school in South Korea, Latin and Greek. Doesn't matter where you live or where you're from, it's Latin and Greek. And so Charlotte Mason was not trying to replace this classical foundation with a British-centric foundation that says, no matter whether you're Finnish, South Korean, or African, or Southeast Asian, or whatever, that, uh, that you have to learn British history. No, she chose British history because that's where the children lived. Right, that's where, that was what was best known to them. Absolutely. That, she taught, she believed that children should learn about the history of where they are and they should learn the language of where they are and then grow out and certainly learn about other cultures and civilizations and other languages and even Latin. But, uh, but the idea here is that I think even, even, um, you know, even Hugh Bolter seemed to kind of miss something. On the one hand, he's saying that Charlotte Mason was insisting that education should start with the needs of the child, but then he's saying, but, you know, how, but, oh, well, you know, the method is just too tied to British culture. 
well, you know, we can replace our island story with books about American history if we're teaching to Americans. And if for a Finnish child, he can grow up, he can be taught in Form 1 with books that talk about the history of Finland. But it seemed that the PNEU wasn't able to make that break at that point. And again, think about the timing here. It's 1989, and Hugh Bolter doesn't just, he just doesn't see how the PNEU can apply to other cultures and times and places four years after Susan Schaefer Macaulay has written For the Children's Sake. Uh, 1989 is the same year that Karen Andriola reprints the oh, Home Education series. The pink volumes. So the pinks are coming out in 1989 at the same time that the PNEU is kind of giving up and saying, you know, it's just not going to work for um, this international context. What, what happens also is described in this summer 1989 issue of Lemuel Pianta is that the PNEU is merging with a group called the Bell Educational Trust. And, uh, and as I understand it, this merge with the Bell Educational Trust is the official end of the PNEU. So 1989 is when the organization of the PNEU comes to an end. And kind of my evidence for that is the later issue of the Lemuel Pianta winter 1989, Eve Anderson describes a meeting that was held on October 6th of 1989. And she says, quote, the PNEU schools are no longer under the umbrella of the WES, and therefore it is up to them to decide whether they wish to remain an association. There was also a discussion on who has the right to use the PNEU badge and motto and whether there is a copyright. Wow. So now with, through all of these years, there's been a, you know, a link between the PNEU schools and the PNEU movement and the parents review and the journal. So now in 1989, it's fragmenting. So no more journal. Um, the, the, the Bell Educational Trust has kind of taken over the central organization and now the PNEU schools are cut loose and they're kind of on their own. So no more programs, no more anything. Right. And even this question of who has the right to use the badge and motto. Fascinating. Um, and so back to our original, you know, the, the question that kind of kicked off this discussion, you know, who's in charge? You know, who gets to decide and say, hey, you can, you can go ahead and use the PNEU badge and motto. Nobody's, nobody can really, there's no official organization that can decide that anymore. And so then in the spring 1990 issue of Lumio Pianta, um, that the uh, that journal describes a meeting on February 13, 1990. Six schools were represented. They are still kind of deciding how the the PNEU schools want to work together now that there's no functioning PNEU organization or umbrella. And um, the meeting was was uh, led by Jack Thornton, who is now the ex chairman of the WES PNEU Council. And he says, quote, that there was a problem because he said, quote, they really need to define what really institutes a PNEU school, as obviously some at present are really just sheltering under the name. Okay. So he's concerned that there are schools that aren't really following, kind of they aren't really qualified as true PNEU schools. And, and there's a concern about, you know, how to, who adjudicates that. And so I kind of, you know, would point to 1989 as sort of the official end of the PNEU. But you should be aware that there are schools in England today that still carry the PNEU name and are still direct descendants from this tradition. And so, for example, if you just take a look at the Fairfield School in Bristol as an example, um, that's a school that is still 
following after the PNEU. You know that that doesn't mean that um, you know that that the Fairfield School in Bristol is you know now the official you know representation of the PNEU organization in the Charlotte Mason movement. Uh, it just they're just a uh, you know because the organization is over and the, and uh, and um, they're just carrying the name just as uh, all kinds of organizations today carry the name of Charlotte Mason and and uh, and, and claim to carry on that tradition. If we went into that school in Bristol, do you think that we would find her uh, home education series? Well, that's a great question. I mean, they do talk about Charlotte Mason, um, but uh, I, th I think that um, that this is when we kind of look at the arc of this story and say, well, is this just, um, you know, there's a common aphorism where people say that history, you know, it's really his story, mm -hmm. his being God, history being God's story. So in, in all of this chronicle, of changes and, and decline and, and these different events, you know, were these just random events or was this really his story? I think that uh, we can really see God's providence in what has happened here. And uh, my thinking on this has really been influenced a lot by Dr. Benjamin Bernier, who is another scholar uh, like Jack Beckman, who wrote his dissertation on Charlotte Mason. You know, Dr. Bernier observed that in Charlotte Mason's day, and really through the whole time of the PNEU, the institution and the ideas of the movement were one and the same. So in other words, in the era of the PNEU, to do a Charlotte Mason education was to be a member of the PNEU and vice versa. And so as long as the PNEU existed, it continued to be the identity of a Charlotte Mason education. I feel like now we have this kind of responsibility or the, you know, as faithful, I want to want to be faithful followers of Charlotte Mason. It feels with this, with this timeline and the story that we, that we have this opportunity really to uh, remain faithful or to carry the torch um, as faithful practitioners of her method. Yes, yes. And the question is under whose mandate, right? So who gives right. us the right to do that? Can we say that we have some kind of organizational consistency. You know, the, the last director of the PNEU has a unbroken chain back to Elsie Kitching and uh, back to Charlotte Mason. And so for those of us today who in America and say, well, we want to carry on the, uh, on the torch, from an institutional perspective, we have no right to do so. But this is where I think the, the element of God's story and history comes to play, because in my view, the publication of For the Children's Sake by Susan Schaefer McCulley marked a transition by which the ideas of Charlotte Mason were finally separated from the institution of the PNEU. And, yeah. uh, you know, the tension that we heard from, from Hugh about, uh, you know, being so British centric and, and wrestling with how, how do you then take the same principles, but make them work if you live in America or if you live in South Korea or if you live in Finland. Now, the Charlotte Mason ideas are available to all. And you don't need the PNEU's permission to put them into place. You don't, you can, you don't need somebody's permission to use the PNEU motto. You know, you don't need the permission of somebody to create a badge or a pin that says for the children's sake, because see the ideas have been separated from that institution and now they've been made available to all. And so many, many groups now have been able to take Charlotte Mason's ideas and apply them to their own educational context. And I believe that the actual absence of centralized control will actually 
far from being the the end of the Charlotte Mason movement, I think it's the beginning. Because I think that interest in Charlotte Mason's ideas will continue to grow rapidly. And I think that now that um, the ideas are free for any group and for every group to utilize and, and not under kind of some kind of central control, I think that that's gonna be the key of what's going to make the method grow and scale. Absolutely, it's truly an education for all. That's right. It's truly an education for all. And, you know, another point that uh, Bernier talks about in his thesis is that as Charlotte Mason tried to widen her reach in her lifetime, uh, one of the things that happened is, is that the farther you got away from kind of the central core at the House of Education, the less you really saw of the fundamental Christian, uh, spiritual, Christ-centered nature of the method. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that that also, while still maintained a thread through all the years of the PNEU, it continued to be emphasized less and less. And so I think that part of what our responsibility is, is to, when we, when we reclaim Charlotte Mason's ideas, that we reclaim not just her practices, but also her fundamental theological orientation around education, because she believed that that Christ is the source of all living ideas and that the Holy Spirit is the supreme educator. And so as we have this opportunity to give rebirth to Charlotte Mason's ideas in every country and every culture, I think we need to make that not you know, not simply just kind of the the representation of just principles of education that that we think work well, but rather it should be an attempt to express an education that flows from the teachings and the identity of, of Christ himself. Well, I mean, Charlotte Mason, we don't want to separate the knowledge. We don't want to have the spiritual and the secular. We don't, we don't want to have that separated, and we certainly don't want to do that within her own method, right? Right, and I think, Ashley, even in your case, I mean, if I'm not mistaken, it hasn't your, I mean, to, to, in many ways, your personal journey with Charlotte Mason has been a journey that's led you actually closer to Christ. Absolutely. With the way that Charlotte Mason talks about the supreme, te the supreme teacher, the divine teacher that is there waiting for me to cooperate, to, to teach my child changed everything for me um, in, in so many different ways, but it also helped me to realize as a Christian that I, that I have that same, that Holy Spirit has that same access to me. So it's not just with my child or with their education and just around that table, but I have, the Holy Spirit has access to my spirit throughout my entire day. So a school is just a part of that um, interaction that I get with the divine teacher. And then not only that, but nature. And as I drive up the mountain and I see these gorgeous sunflowers on the side, I'm, I, I, can, I, I can feel him. I can see him saying, look it, I made this for you. I made this all for you. And I just have that sense of peace and calm and know that I can go out into his nature and really drink in those sacraments and really just have that spiritual experience just walking among the, you know, among the forest here in Colorado. That's so wonderful. And it just goes to show how uh, education is an awakening, not just to kind of knowledge in the neutral sense, but it's awakening to knowledge in the full theological sense. And, uh, you know, Jesus said that eternal life is to know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, I've also noticed or with all of these ways that we are training our children with her method, they're all ways that carry us into the rest of our life to commune with God. They, they, That's right. They, there's not a there's not a time that poetry is not going to connect us with God. There's not a time where history is going to reveal um, God's 
hand in his truth to us. So I just feel like our, my adulthood is just a continuation of my child's really education and that I'm training them in ways to connect with their heavenly father for the rest of their life. That's right. That's so wonderful. And so, you know, kind of back to, you know, the, the, what I would refer to as the question behind the question, which was, you know, if the PNEU method is so good, if the Charlotte Mason method is so good, then why did, you know, why is, why is there no PNEU today? And I, you know, I would point to, you know, my hypothesis would be, I would point to two things. I think the first thing was that I think over time, there was a, there was a drift away from Christ at the heart of the method. And, uh, and that, that life-giving element that so many people talk about in the Charlotte Mason Method and actually that you just talked about, the reason why it's life-giving is because Christ is the one who's bringing us that life. And uh, that life flows through him sacramentally through all of the different activities of education that we do. We're not feeding on, on education as some kind of idol that's separate from God. Where the reason why education is able to nurture us is because it becomes a means by which we draw closer to and enter into deeper fellowship with God. And then I think the second reason that I would point to for why the, the PNEU has dwindled, even though I think that the, the method is, is wonderful, is that the institution of the PNEU was locked into a specific time and culture and country and was fundamentally not able to scale. And so I think that those two causes of what I, what I, my, if my hypothesis is correct, and if those are the two reasons for the decline of the PNEU, I think that those are warnings, sober warnings to all Charlotte Mason educators today. I think that anyone who is involved in, in, in speaking about leading, promoting in, in, in any way, the Charlotte Mason method, I think that those are two warnings that we should always be aware of. Number one is to resist the temptation to sort of secularize the Charlotte Mason method and to downplay or hide the, the Christ-centered core of the, of the philosophy. And then I think the second thing, warning is to try to, again, recreate you know, an institution and, uh, and try to make it such that, to, to try to invent an institution that becomes synonymous with the method. Um, because I think we've just learned that that doesn't scale. And so I think we should welcome and celebrate the idea of allowing communities, countries, cultures, and places to take the principles and the ideas and the method and make it meaningful for their context and not say and not and not try to hold them down to one particular institution that controls everything and and so that leads then to you know the second question behind the question is kind of who's in charge who can tell us if we're doing it the right way and back to the original questioner who said is there anyone that can act to train teachers to be able to sufficiently implement cm's methods in their homeschools or is merely reading mason's volumes enough to be able to accomplish this and you know, the first part of the answer is no, there is no official PNEU that's directly descended from Charlotte Mason and Elsie and Elsie Kitching. There are no CMTs around today who are going to come in and certify and say this is really the right way. But, but, but the flip side of it is I'm going to answer the, the, the last question. I'm going to answer it with a quote from Dr. Jack Beckman's research. When he was working on his dissertation, he interviewed a woman named Stephanie Barker, who graduated from the Charlotte Mason College in 1954. And here's what Stephanie Barker said. She said, everything came to us from Miss Mason's books, her religious beliefs, her educational ideas, and the wide curriculum. 
One did not need to guess where she was going. It was all laid out for us to follow. That was why the training was so consistent over the years. Even now, if you read her books, I think you could figure out her curriculum. And so to our questioner, I would say, yes, even now, I agree with Stephanie Barker, even now, if you read her books, I think you can figure out her curriculum. So Ashley, do you think we should, uh, you know, do you think that there might be other kind of ask art questions out there that people might have that might contribute to some future episode? I sure hope so. I mean, I know that I probably have maybe 10 questions a week for you, maybe, especially during <laughs> planning, <laughs> especially when I'm planning for a new term, like in the next couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, I hope that people email you and let us know what those questions are and, you know, visit Charlotte Mason Poetry and look at all of our exclusive content that we have from your many trips to the Armit Museum of getting these historical documents that aren't anywhere else on the internet to help guide us in this journey of Charlotte Mason along with her books. Yeah, that's right. So be sure to follow us on, uh, on Facebook, Charlotte Mason Poetry on Facebook, as well as on Instagram. And if you have a question for Ask Art, go ahead and you can post it a, as a comment on the show notes page, or you can, um, you can uh, post, send us a, a, a private message over Instagram if you'd like, or you can send us a, a Facebook message to the Charlotte Mason Poetry page on Facebook. Any of those mechanisms are fine. We'd love to hear from you. And I know we ask this every week, but uh, Please do, you know, if you, uh, if you like what you hear on this podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review on iTunes and uh, let us know what you think and let us know uh, how we're doing and what you'd like to hear more of or less of. Um, we've got over 100 episodes out of the podcast and uh, I'd like to see another several hundred more and I'd like you all to be part of the journey as we do that. So thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program. Okay. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? <laughs> I don't think that was bad for the very first recording. <laughs>